0: Good morning. morning. We are in our final week of a four-week series entitled The Thrill of Hope. Why is hope so thrilling? Maybe it's the excitement of something new in the future, like a kid leading up to Christmas with all of the expectation, anticipation of what is actually under the tree, the wonder of it all. Or maybe it's the absence of something that we need in the present, like peace, justice or an opportunity that creates that longing within us for some, some kind of change right now. Either way, we know that without hope, the human spirit, the human spirit has no strength, no ability, no reason to press on. Without hope, despair sets in, a.k.a. misery, desolation, anguish, gloom, depression, dejection, hopelessness. Hope is an essential ingredient for life in the present. In an older comedy, Jim Carrey plays a character who asks a woman who had zero interest in him what the odds might be of her going out with him one day. She tries to be polite and kind and says, like, one in a million. And he responds by saying, so you're telling me there's a chance. (laughs) Though comical, that line well expresses the thrill of hope. So you're telling me there's a chance. That's all he needed to press on. On a more serious note, you might recall the story of Louis Zamperini, a 1936 U.S. Olympian turned World War II hero, who survived 47 days in a life raft drifting at sea, holding on to hope by focusing on the future. After drifting two, over 2,000 miles in the ocean, he was captured by enemy forces, where he endured two years of torture, hanging on, enduring by hanging on to little bits of the news that he got along the way of the success of the allied forces. No matter how daunting his immediate circumstances, the news of future victory kept him going through unimaginable emotional and physical pain. Hope is incredibly powerful. So let's look again at the word of hope that was given by God to His people in Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading from the New International Version, verses 1 through 6. It says in verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you've been with us through this series, you know by now that the child that Isaiah was referring to was Jesus. We have already heard that he is our Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, not necessarily in biblical order. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your prayer. You know of the despair that Israel found itself in due to their passive disregard for and blatant uh, rebellion against the God of the universe. And you know of the hope brought to them in the midst of their despair. The people of Judah had good reason to despair. The nations of Israel and Aram, or Syria as it was known more modernly, And eventually, the growing Assyrian army was closing in around them, and Isaiah brought prophetic confirmation from God that he was indeed, in fact, bringing about these political and geographical consequences in judgment of their rebellion. They were guilty as charged, and their sentencing had begun. There was little hope for them at this point. In light of this reality, why should Judah and especially the few faithful still desiring to follow and obey the Lord hold out any hope? Given the pending political conquest by Assyria and the exile that would accompany their captivity, what reason would they have to press on? Why hold on in faith with a God who had already condemned and sentenced them? Why should they sing like we do? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Well, there's good reason why. But we have to fast forward to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. Turn there with me, if you would, to chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 through 10, Paul gives them a reason, saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, our everlasting Father, parenthesis, mine. In accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins through our Prince of Peace. In accordance with the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding as our wonderful Counselor. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, our mighty God. Before the creation of the world, He chose us. When? Before. Before the creation of the world, Jesus was not an afterthought. He was not an, oh no, what now, plan B for our shocked creator who suddenly discovered that we were not the sweet little angels he thought we would be. Jesus is our creator. And he understood our need for redemption before he created the world. In Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, even then that the spirit of God hovered over the waters. In Genesis 1:26, God says, let us make mankind in our image. And we have to ask the question, who is the us that he's referring to? In Isaiah 6, God says, who will go for us? Last week, Pastor Mike explained the three persons of the Trinity in perfect unity and purpose, being one God from the beginning. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus, He was with God in the beginning, and nothing was made that has been made apart from Him. Paul reiterates this in the first chapter of Colossians, verse 15, where he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before the creation of the world, he chose us to to be what? To be holy and blameless, but we were anything but holy and blameless. Paul in Romans 5, 8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before the creation of the world, God had already made a plan to deal with Israel's sin and rebellion and our sin and rebellion by bringing unity to all things under Christ. And so this morning we have at least five reasons for hope. If you're following along in your notes, the first of those five reasons is that God displayed his purpose before the creation of the world. Israel's rebellion was not a surprise to God. The Israelites were not holy and blameless. As Isaiah describes them in chapter 3, he says they paraded their sin, approving of it and condoning others for participation in it, much like Paul describes our world in Romans 1. Again in Isaiah three fifteen, he says, They crushed God's people and grinded the faces of the poor. In chapter five, they're described as oppressive landowners, as self exalting and corrupt, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and who deny justice to the innocent. They were an idolatrous, greedy people who disregarded God and oppressed the vulnerable in an effort to control their own circumstances. Does this sound familiar at all in our world today? Andy Crouch, an editor with Christianity Today International, uh, a former staff member also of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, spoke last December at their national staff conference where he unfolded some of the principles from his book Strong and Weak in that he shares a little two-by-two graph displaying the power of authority and vulnerability. In the upper Left of the graph, he describes that area of high authority and low vulnerability as an area where people seek control. In the lower right of the graph, it's an area of low authority and high vulnerability, where people suffer and experience poverty. In the lower left, he labels that area of low authority and low vulnerability as safety. I might add the words comfort. Comfort. And in the upper right, in a place of high authority and high vulnerability, he says that's where there is actually flourishing. He says, for you to live in the upper left, someone else has to live down to the lower right. You can't get rid of vulnerability, you can only shift it to someone else. Keeping others down to the right, he says, requires violence and oppression. And this results in what the Bible describes in the upper right as idolatry and injustice. Upper left, rather. In their disregard for God, Israel and Judah were in a reciprocal pattern with the world around them as as both enactors and recipients of injustice, oppression, and violence. The world in Isaiah's time was being dominated by people living in the upper left where there was high authority, low vulnerability, where they were guilty of idolatry and injustice, enacting violence on those to the lower right. And God continued to remind them through the prophets of their true position before him, one of low authority and high vulnerability, where true authority was given only from God, an accountability to God, something that Jesus would later remind Pontius Pilate of when he said, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. Whenever people are ruling with tyranny and oppression, they are always ruling from the upper left. And Jesus requires all leaders and regimes to lead only from the upper right. God was continually calling his people to move from whatever place they might be on that graph to the upper right. Where though there is high vulnerability as created beings under the authority of our creator. It is vulnerability in the most secure sense under the perfect and just care of our everlasting father. It's in this context and only in this context that God's people are empowered to lead with biblical authority in love and in justice. That's why I so much love Proverbs 29.2 and it says it well in the Christian Standard uh, Bible where it says, when the righteous flourish, the people rejoice, but when the wicked flourish, the people groan. And it says it well again in the New Living Translation when it says that the God, when the godly are in authority... The people rejoice, for, for, but when the wicked are in power, the people groan. So the only way that we can honor God in a place of high authority is to recognize that God is not only our wonderful counselor, as Pastor Dave shared with us a few weeks ago, who is wise beyond any other. He is also our prince of peace and not just one pursuing peace. He is the prince of all peace. All peace comes through him, the one who made peace possible through his shed blood on the cross, taking upon himself the most vulnerable of all roles, the bearer of our sin and our guilt. And He is not just a loving father. He is our everlasting father. Isaiah tells us that he is all of these wonderful counselors, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, all wrapped up into the most powerful being, period. Mighty God, who will judge the living and the dead, before whom every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this gives us the thrill of enduring hope, because as mighty God, He will never be removed from His throne. He is eternal, alpha and omega, without beginning, without end, surpassed by none, equaled by none. Holy, 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 we sing in the old hymn, there is none beside thee. Or as we sing in a song more recently written about his beautiful, wonderful, powerful name, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever our God reigns. He is always there. When I was a kid, I always felt safe as long as my oldest brother Bill was around. Even as home sometimes didn't seem safe and felt unsafe, if my brother Bill was around, I felt safe. Or if I was out among the wolves in our so-called street gang, where I was the littlest, if my brother Bill was there, I felt safe. Or even on the football field, where I weighed lighter than the football at that time. If Bill was blocking for me, I felt safe carrying the football. But Bill couldn't always be there. As safe as I felt around him, he pales in comparison to God. In Israel's heydays, the armies paled too in comparison to God. God didn't need Gideon's large army to defeat the Midianites. And David didn't need Saul's armor nor his fear-filled army to defeat Goliath. Gideon and David had a mighty God, and so do we. Isaiah explains this so well in chapter 40. You don't need to turn there. I invite you just to listen to how he talks about God. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one by name? Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing, Isaiah says. Our biblical history reminds us also that our mighty God built the nation of Israel through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, providing for the 12 tribes of Israel and establishing them beyond all odds in the land that he promised to Abram hundreds of years earlier. Israel was a nickname for Jacob, who had 12 sons, who would essentially become the 12 tribes of Israel, known simply as Israel, or the Israelites, who earlier were in bondage in Egypt after Joseph, the second youngest of the brothers, was sold by their older brothers into slavery. Something, too, that God was not surprised by. He told Abram of this long before it happened. Our mighty God that brought them up out of Egypt through a massive display of power. He gave them laws to live by that were just and right with good commands. Deuteronomy 10, 17 describes it this way. says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And he carried them through one insurmountable hurdle after another to establish them in the land that they are living in when Isaiah speaks to them. Our first reason for hope is that God had established his purpose before the creation of the world. And our second reason for hope is that God displayed his power in establishing his people. And yet the people that God had so graciously revealed himself to and so powerfully provided for had a habit of disregarding him as soon as good times settled in. Something I'm sure we never do today. But in the Old Testament, we see this all the time over and over again. They continually disregarded his command through the prophet Micah to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God and they gravitated continually to the upper left into idolatry and injustice. Had their king Ahaz heeded Micah's words, who also prophesied during Isaiah's time, the nation of Judah would have avoided God's judgment and perhaps enjoyed the biblical prosperity that God intended for them. Not just financial provision and security, that was part of it, but the the hope, the peace, the rest, the justice that Pastor Jordan spoke of a few weeks ago the flourishing that Andy Crouch referred to in his craft, the biblical peace, shalom, as the Bible calls it in the Old Testament, that God intended for them. Neil Planiga, who is the former president of Calvin Theological Seminary, defines the word shalom as not just a cessation of violence, but of universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. The nation of Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom, during their divided era, experienced anything but universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Due to their disregard for God, they were living in a land of darkness, where even the few that held faithful to the Lord's commands had to wonder if all was not lost. Yet in the midst of this darkness comes the thrill of hope through the promise of the Messiah, a child who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, and Mighty God. If there was any doubt that the child being spoken of in Isaiah's prophecy was in fact God incarnate, it was eliminated with this title. He would be called Mighty God, which was synonymous with Almighty God, referenced in several other places in the Scripture. It was not just a mere exaggerated term that kings of other nations like to use about themselves, calling themselves gods. The Hebrew kings had no pattern of referring to themselves as gods. When Isaiah says this child will be called Mighty God, he was referring to the creator of all that ever was and will be, who would enter personally into our world as a child full of grace and truth and authority. It took his disciples quite a while to figure this out, though. For instance, Peter in Luke 5 acquiesces to the Lord when the Lord tells him to go back out after Peter had been fishing all day and caught nothing. He says, go put your nets out on the right side. And Peter looks at Jesus and essentially says, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. But because you say so, I'll go and do it. And Peter and Jesus go out into the boat and Jesus, Peter casts his net over the right side of the boat and after hauling in a larger catch of fish than he'd ever caught before, he backs up and says to Jesus, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinner. Later, the disciples were all in the boat together without Jesus hanging out and all of a sudden they look and here comes Jesus walking towards them across the water. And they began to wonder, Another time they were all in the boat with Jesus and a big storm arose, but Jesus was asleep and they panicked and they like, Jesus! And Jesus gets up and is like, what? And calms the storm. Back on dry land, he feeds 5,000 people with a few leftover pieces of bread and fish and he does it again, feeding 4,000 people, involving the disciples in the process. And then they watch him silence and dismantle the the, the arguments of the religious leaders and the skeptics who were trying to trap Jesus. They watched him silence them as he spoke with wisdom and authority. And then they watched him walk up to a little girl, grab her by the hand, and say, Talitha, a little girl who had died, and say, Talitha, get up. And she got up. And he called out to Lazarus in the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And he came out. And Jesus later explained to them, Don't you see? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The government was on his shoulders, as Isaiah taught in 9, verse 6. Jesus, the one with all authority and yet total vulnerability, then walks into the garden of Gethsemane and submits to the will of the Father under the crushing weight of blame for our sin. All of our sin. Jesus is, in fact, our mighty God who rules with perfect authority and total vulnerability to move, remove our eternal vulnerability, alleviating whatever fear and despair we may be tempted to live in. And then there is his greatest act of mighty power demonstrated through the resurrection when all seemed lost, when all seemed defeated, even for those who had insight into the Old Testament prophecy, who held on with joy as they made their final approach to Jerusalem where they thought he would sit on his eternal throne While they waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And even for those who dared to walk with him into the garden. The crucifixion was the final blow. No, no, after all this, it can't just end in death. And darkness had again spread out across the land. But Sunday was on its way. Imagine the thrill of hope when the massive stone too large for any human alone to move had already been rolled away as the women approached the throne, the the tomb. Imagine the thrill of hope when the disciples, after hearing the news, ran to the tomb themselves to see for themselves. Imagine the thrill of hope when Thomas touched his side. And imagine the thrill of hope when Peter even after he had denied Jesus three times, was again commanded to cast his net out over the boat before being invited to eat with Jesus on the shore. God had, in fact, performed his mightiest of acts in and through the life, death, and now resurrection of Jesus in victory over all of sin, all of death, all of darkness. So convinced of this was the Apostle Paul that in first. Corinthians 15, he writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And then he encourages the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, writing about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, saying, we do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Don't be uninformed about those who are asleep in death so that you do not grieve like mankind who have no hope, he says. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all who have fallen asleep in him. Our third reason for hope is that God had displayed his power through a child named Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. In John 14, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And so now imagine the thrill of hope when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost and the nations who were alienated from God began to hear the gospel being preached in their own languages by ordinary fishermen as described in Acts 2. When the Spirit fell on the church at Pentecost, 120 believers became 3,000, and 3,000 became 5,000, and today there is an average of over 50,000 people per day coming to Christ around the world. How is this happening? Our mighty God is still at work. God did not stop working after Acts 2, even with growing persecution. Imagine the thrill of hope when Peter showed up at the door of those who were praying for his release from prison. Imagine the early followers of Christ going from the fear of death to the thrill of hope when they saw Saul, now Paul, transformed from an evil persecutor to a passionate partner in the gospel. Our mighty God did not stop there in the Bible either. He is alive and active today. Imagine the thrill of hope when Elizabeth Elliot in the late 50s peacefully trimmed the hair of the very man who killed her husband Jim just two years earlier during his effort to reach them with the love of Christ. Imagine the thrill of hope When the Yanomamo tribe of Venezuela and Brazil who lived in fear of one another and of evil spirits believed in the gospel and put their trust in Yai Pada, the mighty God of the Bible, discovering a freedom in Christ so strong that they laid down their old ways of violence to make peace with one another. All because they understood that mighty God of the Bible. The mighty God of the Bible was far greater than the evil within them or the demonic voices that whispered in their ears from without. In 1974, Billy Graham helped head up the first Lausanne Conference of World Evangelization where he said, never before have so many representatives of so many evangelical Christian churches in so many nations from so many tribal and language groups gathered to worship, to pray, and to plan together for world evangelization. The Lausanne movement continues today having regional meetings around the world. I had the privilege of being at one just last summer. They're noted for their recognition of the complexity of human situations to which Christians are called to respond in love. And they're noted for their comprehensiveness with which they deal with the speak of the triune God of the Bible and the gospel of Christ and the church. And so you can imagine the thrill of hope as this was implemented when the Romanian pastor, Laszlo Tokes, who faithfully preached the gospel despite communist threats in 1989, saw thousands of people standing outside of his church in solidarity, a crowd which soon then grew so large that it overthrew Szczeski, the communist dictator who had been leading in idolatry and injustice, oppressing his people from the upper left. Faith had given Pastor Toke's eyes to see that the church was the community of the people of God that could infiltrate the world. And in his case, result in a free Romania. God continues to work powerfully through churches committed to and faithfully living out the word of God. The Bible-believing church is the fastest-growing religious group in the world and continues to grow despite persecution from every imaginable direction where followers of Christ in China, in India, in Iran and throughout the Muslim world are more committed than ever to stand with Christ. Our fourth reason for hope is that God displayed his power through the church in the world and he has not stopped with the missionary activity of the past. The thrill of hope continues right now, right here, through us as Woodlands Church, reaching into the world and into our community. So you might imagine my thrill of hope as I had the opportunity to speak to a room full of people in a little village in Bukeka, Uganda, and saw in the audience an imam, a Muslim leader, listening intently as I shared the gospel in the context of a parents' conference. Imagine the thrill of hope when members of Woodlands Church have stood in the past and will again in the, pre- in the future in Bolivia, surrounded by little children whom they've had the privilege of sponsoring through Compassion International. And imagine the thrill of hope that many of us here have experienced. seeing a young woman who was addicted to drugs imprisoned separated from her children jobless and homeless come to Christ Jesus and become drug free gainfully employed begin using her gifts in the church and recently become a homeowner united again with her children all through the power of our mighty God working through his people right here in Portage County. Amen. And now, imagine the thrill of hope when you take that next vulnerable step of obedience to the upper right. For some of you, that might be the step of trusting Jesus for the first time. It's scary. Is he real? Does he know everything I've done? Yes, he does. Can he redeem my messed up present and my horrific past? Yes, he can. When I asked Jesus into my life some 35 plus years ago, I had no idea what I was doing or what to expect. I didn't think a whole lot of it, but then several days later and then several months later and now several years later, I realized that when I look back to that day, he did something that only he could do and he transformed my life, adopted me as his very own child and gave me a hope beyond my wildest imagination. And he's not done with me yet. Many of you can be thankful for that. Maybe that's your first step of obedience. Or maybe your first step of vulnerable obedience to the upper right is to speak or to act in humble confidence and authority under the perfect care of your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting Father, your Prince of Peace. And that gives us our fifth reason for hope that God will display His power in and through us as we carry on with His purpose to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Let's pray. God, we can only imagine what You can do. Help us to never forget what You've already done. Help us to see an ever-increasing picture of your goodness, of your justice, of your love, of your authority, of your kindness. Help us respond by submitting all that we have, all that we are, to you. Allowing you to shape us and mold us and use us in however way you desire to continue building your church here and around the world. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name, amen.